The story is told of a boss of a very large company who was having problems with one of their main computers and didn't know a thing about it and had to call one of their key employees who worked on such systems. He made a phone call to their house late one evening and uh, the phone was answered by a little boy who had answered the phone and in a whispered tone said, Hello? At that point, the uh, boss said, um, Is your daddy home? And the little boy said, Yes. He said, Well, can I speak to your daddy, please? And he said, No. A little bit caught off guard by that and surprised, he said, Well, is your mommy home? He said, Yes. Can I speak to your mommy? And again, he said, No. And he, said, well, and he was a little bit surprised that, you know, the mom and dad, if they were there, they weren't around. There must be somebody babysitting. He said, well, is there anybody else in the home that, that I can speak to? And, and he said, uh, well, yes. Well, who else is there? He said, the policeman. Policeman. So, well, can I speak to the policeman? He said, no. So, why not? So, he's talking to mommy and daddy and the fireman. And now the guy's getting a little worried. The fireman, he goes, and, and he hears what sounds like a helicopter in the background. He says, what, what's that noise? And the little boy goes, it's a helicopter. He goes, what's it doing? He said, well, it's landing in our yard. And again, now by this point, this guy's freaking out. He's going, what, what in the world's going on? What, what, what's, the, what's the policeman and the helicopter and the search and rescue and the fireman? What's, what, what are they all doing at your house? He said, they're looking for me. You know, when I heard that story, I thought, nah, someone's in trouble. Oh, man. You know, as, as any new parent, you know, can attest, it doesn't take long to realize one of the primary responsibilities of parenthood is to teach children the difference between right and wrong behavior. I'm sure that little boy will learn that uh, in the subsequent conversations that take place afterwards. But every family must have rules by which to govern or there is chaos and anarchy as each member of the family would choose his own direction and what is best for himself. That's just the way it is. And in the family there must be structure and in some ways it's a rigid structure in other ways it must be flexible. You know, according to God's plan for the family, the husband is to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, loving her as Christ loved the church, sacrificially giving himself up for her. You know, the wife is to submit or place herself under the authority, the love, the protection and care of her own husband as to the Lord. And children are to obey their parents in the Lord because the Bible says that is right. You know, there's a difference between right and wrong. There are absolutes. Despite what we hear in our culture, there are absolutes, right and wrong. And in a similar manner, God has established rules for his household, which is the church, And in our ongoing study of the Bible, in particular the book of 1 Timothy, we come to a passage that commands all the members of God's household, basically says, behave yourself. Behave yourself. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to a very short but powerful passage of Scripture, one that's loaded, as you'll see, with a wealth of spiritual truth. Three verses is all we're going to cover, and some of you are mistakenly believing that you're going to get out early. And... uh, (laughs) That isn't going to happen. Three verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we find them in verse 14. We read these words. It says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 
And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The church of Ephesus, as we've noted in uh, past messages, was starting to drift away from the very basic truths of Christianity. False teachers had arose as was predicted among them, And due to the negligence of the congregation, not holding such men accountable to God's truth, began leading folks astray. In response, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to combat the problem and now is sending Timothy in written form, written instructions as to how all believers are to behave in the house of God. As I was studying and preparing and going through uh, this particular passage and the ones that you'll see in, in a moment, uh, God reminded me of an incident that took place several years ago. Uh, we had worked for a particular gentleman who had retired and sold his business. He and his wife moved to Rancho Santa Fe down in, uh, in Southern California, actually northern San Diego County, and uh, moved into this beautiful house that they had. And they had invited my wife and I and our three young children at the time to dinner. Uh, at the time, I think their age is uh, probably nine, five, and three. And uh, as we were driving, we had plenty of time to instruct on the proper do's and don'ts. And as we were walking up to the house, there was one final admonition, behave yourselves. So we walk into this huge mansion, just this gorgeous house. And, and our, our kids are perfect, man. I mean, well-mannered, polite. You know, and it shouldn't be surprising knowing the gene pool in which they swim. But... <laughs> But, you know, it was just everything was going great until dinner time. Dinner time, we're invited into this big dining room. And in this dining room is this huge glass table. And on the table is china, silverware, crystal glasses, a recipe for disaster. And so as we're moving into this dining room, I'm just like, oh, Lord, please let nothing happen here. And they all sit up to the table, and things are going along real well. And I reach over, and I grab my goblet of water and pick it up. It slips right through my hands, drops on the table, shatters in about a 1,000 pieces, water, ice, glass flying everywhere. And by this time, all three of our kids are rolling on the floor just dying of laughter. (laughs) They are just praising God that it wasn't them and it was me. You know, and, and, and the whole way home was kind of like, <laughs> this is great. And the whole time I'm thinking how easy it is sometimes to tell others to behave themselves and forget how easy it is for us to misbehave. And so as we go through this particular passage in verses 14 and 15, Paul is saying, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. You know, the purpose of his writing this letter to Timothy is to instruct believers how to behave in God's house, the church. These things that he's referring to are the things that we've already seen in our study so far. We're kind of at a midpoint in the study. The first three chapters we've looked at, he's told all men how to behave in the church of God or household of God. All men are to, are to, are to pray. All men are to be the leaders. He told women the godly behavior that he expects of women in the household of God. He's told church leaders, uh, elders and deacons, what is expected of them and the qualifications in which to lead those who are in the household of God. And so as he's looking at this, he will then in verse in chapters 4, 5, and 6 give negative warnings as to how not to behave. So it's kind of like, here's how you should behave, here's how you shouldn't behave, and the combination of both is what we need on a regular basis to understand what God expects of us. Don't do this, do that. Don't do that, do this. 
you know, and, and on and on it goes. And so the instruction is, I always like to tell people, you know, God's classroom is never closed. He never shuts down for summer. He's never in between semester breaks. You know, God's classroom is always open and lessons are taught continually for those who are paying attention. Plus, God doesn't grade on a, on a curve. He grades on a pass-fail basis. If you haven't learned the lesson, you will repeat it over and over again until you get it. And, and it's just the way that it is. You know, and so as we look at this... As the head of the local church in Ephesus, it was critical that singular, it says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, specifically to you, I'm writing these things to you that you may know. The word know or knowledge has to do with the fact that it's a possession of knowledge or skill necessary to accomplish a specific task. He's saying, I'm writing to, the, to you, Timothy, that you will know how to teach God's truth, basically this truth. I am writing to you so that you in turn can teach what I am writing to you to all of God's household so that they all know how to behave themselves in the household of God. That's what he's saying. As the head of the local church, it was important, it was critical that Timothy understood his responsibility to teach God's kids, so to speak, how they're to behave in God's house. So behaving in the church as God desires calls for uh, understanding three essential truths. And that's the simple outline that will follow the three essential truths that he wants us to understand in order that we may know how to better behave ourselves in God's house. The first thing he reminds everyone of is that, you know, it is God who is the master of his home. God is the master of his household. And, you know, it's, it, it almost goes without saying it's basic yet essential to understand that the church belongs to God. It's God's church. It's his family. And the metaphor that he uses is the term word household. He's saying that it is God's household. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, which obviously he was because he, has got, he, had, he had sent this in writing. In case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself... ...in the household of God. Very simply, the metaphor is that of a family. Believers are members of God's household... ...and should conduct themselves according to God's rules. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul emphasizes the same truth when he says... ...so then you are no longer strangers and aliens... ...but you are fellow citizens with the saints... ...and are of God's household. We need to recognize and understand... ...that we are born into the world strangers to God... Aliens to God, foreigners to God. We are born in rebellion against God. We really want nothing to do with God, and we don't want God telling us what to do because of the nature that we have, which is a sin nature. The Bible clearly teaches that through Adam, sin entered into the world, and when sin was, was conceived or gave birth, it gave birth to death. Every one of us are born into the world spiritually dead, alienated from God. All have gone astray. You know, each seek his own. None are righteous, no, not one. All of sin, fall short of the glory of God. We are, we are all born into the world strangers to God. But something miraculous takes place in that the person who was once a stranger to God now becomes a member of the family of God. You know, Jesus was a lot more blunt when he spoke to the Pharisees when he said this. You know, you're either of God's family or you're the devil's family. You're either a child of God or the child of Satan. You're one or the other. And he was very clear when he said that. And he told them at that time, you are of your father the devil. 
who is a liar and a murderer from the very beginning, who hates God and the things of God, who chose to rebel against God, and sin nature is exactly that, choosing to rebel against God. He said, now, you were formerly that way, and as we look at this, there is a miraculous moment in time. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn to John chapter 1 so we can see how one goes from the family of Satan or the household of the devil to become a member of the household of God. This is critical that we understand the metaphor that he's sharing with us in order to better relate to how to behave ourselves in God's household. In John chapter 1, verse 11, we read the words, He, speaking of Jesus, says, He came to His own, His own were the Jewish people, and those who were His own, the Jews, did not receive Him. They rejected Him as their Savior. It says, But as many as received Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to them who are them, those who receive Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice what he says, that a person who is in rebellion against God, is walking from God, a member of the household of Satan, can be born again into the family of God by simply doing two things. Number one, repenting, which means to turn around and have a change of mind and a change of heart. And two, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says you shall be saved. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer said, and the response was, you must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Notice it's not an act of human will. You can't say to yourself, I don't want to be a part of Satan's family anymore. God, I will be a part of your family now. There's only one entrance into the family of God, and that is through repentance, which means turning from sin, turning to God, throwing yourself upon his mercy, and believing what he says, that Jesus Christ was sent to this world in order to die upon the cross for your sins, for my sins, for all who believe. He rose from the dead three days later, establishing his credentials as the Savior of the world. And there's only one hope for those who are the family of the devil ever to get into the family of God, and that is repentance of sin and trust or faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone for the forgiveness of those sins. The Bible says that it is not an act of human will, but we are born again from above. That's an act of God. Titus 3, 3 through 5 tells us the same thing. In John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must be born into the household of God. 1 Peter 2 talks about we are born again by the imperishable word of God. He also goes on in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes and says that we cry out, Abba or Father, Daddy so to speak, because we are sons of adoption. So we are born into the family of God when we repent of sin and trust in Christ. And so now we become a member of the household of God. Because the local church is a family, it must be fed. And there's only one nourishment that, that's given to us, like newborn babes, 1 Peter 2 goes on, talking about after talking about how we are born again by the imperishable word of God, he goes on chapter 2 and says, and like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you will grow in respect to salvation. So just as a parent or parents understand they must feed their children, nourish their children, you know, eat your vegetables so you'll grow up to be strong. Eat this, don't eat that. Do this, don't do that. God says, hey, listen, the only nourishment that he has for his kids is the pure milk of the word of God. 
that we should long for it. And not just milk only, but there's a time in our life as we grow into spiritual maturity that now we can sink our teeth into the deep meat of God's truth. There's a point where you say, stop drinking milk, let's get on to the good stuff, the, 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 the meat, meaty stuff that we can really chew on and, and spend time in. So there's a growth process, and this whole idea of family demonstrates that. Children must be loved. Children must be disciplined. Children must be encouraged. Children must have a godly example in which to follow so that they understand the direction that they need to go. It is basic and yet it is essential to understand that the church belongs to God and therefore we must go to him for direction and guidance. And at this point, I, I, with all of this in mind, I just briefly want to share with you, uh, because I have heard from many of you and there have been many concerns, and I want to address this, of the ongoing rumors or gossips concerning the future of this group, Kindred Fellowship, and me personally as to whether I will continue to teach this group, continue to teach at Calvary Church. I want to address it from this standpoint. I want to give you a, a, an overview you know, the purpose of an ABF or Sunday school class was always designed to be an additive to the worship service. That has been historically the purpose of why you would have a Sunday school class, ABF or whatever. And, uh, and so that has been the, the history of that. You know, unfortunately, we have a very unique history at this church. For those of you who are guests, forgive us for this little bit. You know, as family, we're kind of taking care of a little family business here. And um, so, you know, but, but because of the nature by which our previous pastor had left under the circumstances in which he left, the time that there was in between, the time where there was no pastor whatsoever, no continuity of ministry from the main sanctuary, um, you know, each of the small groups, and this is one of them, you know, considered that to be their church or their home family or their, their, their family because there was consistency, continuity, and that was to be expected. And in fact, we praise God for the fact that all the small groups that were on this campus during that time held this church together. Those who came to listen to a man speak, they left when that man left. Those who were involved in the, in the actual body of believers, so to speak, were plugged in, whether it was this group, small groups, other ABFs, whatever the other ministries were, and they're still here. And so, you know, a lot of times we preach to the choir when we talk about people that are gone, they're not here, we might as well talk about people that are. So the people that are still here because of that unique history, um, you know, what has happened is there has been an evolution of thought that groups like ours have become kind of a church within a church. And not just here, it's a church-wide phenomenon because of, the, I believe, the unique history that has brought us to this point. And so as a result, it has caused somewhat of some confusion. It has caused uh, some sense of uh, competitiveness, it has caused some sense of, you know, independence and, and you know, and, and it's difficult in a large church because, I mean, let, let's be frank for a second. I mean, when, when people say, oh, this is a Sunday school class and there's 700 people here, you know, a lot of people scratch their head and go, well, that's bigger than, you know, you know, the average church in America is 100 people. So it's kind of a unique situation that we're dealing with. And yet at the same time, I praise God for, you know, those who have been here throughout that whole history and there's reasons for it and I believe we all understand that. So in the process of trying to figure out what is God doing, what direction is he taking Calvary Church in general and how do all these churches within a church, you know, uh, fit within the larger structure of Calvary Church, we have, uh, we have had ongoing dialogue as to what that's all about. And like the typical family, uh, you know, you don't always agree and at times you don't see eye to eye and things. Things can get a little testy at times, but at the same time, there is a commitment to the reality that we are family, and we are committed to resolve it as a family. And uh, so sometimes you 
keep coming back at each other and trying to figure out what that means. And, you know, and basically that's where we are at this point. As of this moment in time, there is no final decision. There has none that has been made. And in fact, we had a meeting this past week that is leading to further conversation and a meeting again Tuesday night. And so at this particular point, what I would encourage every one of us to do is to continue to pray because this is God's house. It's his, it's, you know, it's his house, and we need to go to him for direction. Man plans his ways, you know, but the Lord directs his steps. And sometimes we go in a direction only to be told, well, you know what, wait a minute. God wants us to go and do something else, and that's why he has brought this to where it is. And so you have to continually evaluate those things. So I would encourage you as members of the household of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to continue to pray. In the process, be kind and tender-hearted forgiving one another just as God and Christ has forgiven us. Uh, we'll have plenty of opportunity to do that in the family of God, forgiving one another as in our own families. You know, we offend one another on a regular basis and there has to be room for forgiveness. You know, God's love doesn't take into an account a wrong that's suffered. We need to be patient and we need to trust that in the end that God will be glorified through the decision that is made. And as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I got to say about that. So the second thing is, as um, Paul further defines the assembly of believers as the church of the living God, or literally the living God's church. I like that. The living God's church. The church that God has bought or purchased with his own blood, according to Acts chapter 20. And so we look at this and understand that, you know, we are God's own possession to the praise and the glory of God. The living God. I love the phrase, the living God. If you read through the Old Testament, you will be excited to see how many times you will find in the Old Testament that our God is a living God. One of the first things as I was thinking of that whole, that term that's associated with God is that of, you know, David, when he was a shepherd boy, David, and his confrontation with Goliath. And Goliath kept profaning the name of God. And nobody would stick, stand up for God. No one would defend God. No one would be used by God. They all stayed and they cowered away and they were afraid of this giant named Goliath. And as David came out on the battlefield and they tried to put armor on him and everything, he couldn't even walk with it. He laid it all aside and he went down and he picked up the five pebbles that he picked up and, uh, and he went out and he confronted it. And he said, you know what? Who do you think you are to taunt the living God? Are you crazy? God is not dead. God is alive and quite well. And we are of his household, the living God. God is alive. And we serve a living God and a risen Savior. He is alive. And the excitement that I have as I consider that is my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? As the deer pants for the water's brook, so my soul pants for you. And he goes on and says, for you, the living God. God is alive. And God wants everyone to come to know him in a personal relationship so that we all could be a part of the household of God. That is why God created man to fellowship with him and to praise him for eternity. God is alive. And it's a rich history as we look at that. We serve a living God. He is quite well. He is alive. Contrary to stupid things that you hear somebody say or see bumper stickers, God is dead. God is not dead. He is alive. And those who make such statements are dead spiritually because obviously they do not know him personally. 
The second thing that we look at as to the mission of the church, with the master of the church is the living God. It's the living God's church. And the mission of the church, as we look at this, he goes back, if you get back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, and uh, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and notice the other metaphor he now uses, the pillar and support of the truth. The words pillar and support immediately bring to, to uh, mind a word picture that the Ephesians would be well aware of. And the Ephesians would be well aware of the temple of Diana, one of the greatest temples that ever, that ever existed, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And in fact, William Barclay gives this following description of the temple of the goddess Diana. It says, one of its features was its pillars. It says, it contained 127 pillars, every one of them the gift of a king. All were made of marble and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. The pillar of the living God. And as the, as the church is the pillar and support, as they were looking at this, immediately, I, re, I recall on one of our trips to Greece, as we went around and you look at the ruins and you see the pillars that are still standing, these majestic pillars that are there, it's not hard to picture what's being mentioned here. A pillar has to do with those, those columns that stand upright. The support is the foundation. And so you've got this foundation and these pillars, and it held this tremendous, magnificent structure together. The roof was laid on top of it, and it held it up as though it was on a pedestal. And you know what God's saying is? His household, the church is to be a pedestal which holds up so everyone can see the truth of the word of God. It is to be the foundation of God's truth in a world that is in rejection of God. It is to be a pedestal, as it were, that the church holds up high on a pedestal so all the world can see that God is a living God who has rules for mankind and those rules and those standards are laid out in the Bible, His truth, the Scripture, because we know that the Word of God is truth. Jesus prayed for His followers in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. The word of God is truth. What God says is true. Whether people like it or not, it's true. And so as we look at this, the purpose of the church is to uphold the divine revelation of the Christian faith. One man writes this of that. It is the solemn responsibility of every church to solidly, immovably, unshakably uphold the truth of God's word. The church does not invent the truth and alters it only at the cost of judgment. It is, so, it is to support and safeguard it. It is the sacred saving treasure given to sinners for their forgiveness and to believers for their sanctification and edification that they might live for the glory of God. The church has the stewardship of scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on all of the earth. Churches that tamper with misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to a secondary position or abandon biblical truth, destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. And to that I simply say, amen. The, the reason that our family 20 years ago chose Calvary Church of Santa Ana, California as our home church is that this church has always had a reputation for putting on that pillar the word of God and holding it before all of man. We preach the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, so help us God. 
That is why we came here. That is why we are still here. And that is why I praise, pray and pray to God that we will continue to be here to do what God has called us to do and uphold the truth of the word of God on a pedestal so all can see. The church should be about nothing less than that. That is our primary mission. That is the mission of the church. See, you know, if we, if we forget that and we get into all the things that our culture tells us we should be, if we get into the entertainment business, we're not really good at it. We're just really not. You know, <clears throat> you think about it. If you want to go see a top-notch play, go somewhere where that's what they do for a living. They're good at it. You want to see a movie, you want to see a drama, go do that. Not that we can't do those things, and not that there's a, not a place for those things. But don't take what I'm saying out of context, because the context is this. That the church's primary mission is to be the pillar and support that upholds the truth of the divine revelation of God, His Word in written form, because without it, all mankind is lost. No one will ever be saved and taken from the household of the devil and put into the household of God by anything other than the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is nothing else that will work. We are just not really good at anything else. And, we're, and, and we don't even get good at when we start to move the word of God off the pedestal to a secondary position and put something else there. We are good for nothing. You know, if you want to bring someone to church, bring them because you know that when they come, they will hear the word of God. They won't like it necessarily, but if they're seeking truth, they have a hunger for it, they'll love it. I mean, I've seen people leave here, and I've heard them because I've snuck up behind them. Not on purpose, <laughs> but by accident, trying to, you know, get to the stadium or uh, something else going on. And I've heard people say, you know, hey, well, what did you think what was said? I don't like him. Well, but why? Well, because he said that if you don't repent of sin and turn and trust in Jesus and him alone, that you're going to hell. Good, then you heard correctly. <laughs> you never want anybody leaving here confused about what was said. You know, got to hear it. That's what they heard. I praise God for that. That is right. What's the problem? I don't like that. Well, who cares? No, I don't mean, I mean, it's who cares? You know, we, there are a whole bunch of things in life we don't like. You know, when you go to work and your boss tells you to do something, you go, I don't like that. Hey, you know what? You either do it or you're called unemployed. You know? <laughs> you know, and your parents tell you to do something when you're a little kid, you don't like it and you don't do it. Hey, you're called, uh, hey, time out, whatever, you know? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we don't like in life. But you know what? We deal with it because we understand one thing, authority. And if God is the living God, the ultimate authority of all things, and it's his call and his shot, guess what? You know, it really is, when you think about it, it's my, way, my highway to heaven, or you know what? Your path to destruction. It's your choice. The mission of the church is to support, collectively support, and now individually, and here's where, here's where we have some troubles, and here's what I want to share with you, some things that we can apply individually. You know, the only way that the church collectively can uphold God's word, support God's word, hold up God's word on a pedestal, is that when we individually, each believer is committed to the same duty. Don't forget that the only reason that false teachers arose among those in Ephesus is because the people, number one, didn't hold them accountable to God's truth, and number two, they didn't want God's truth because they didn't like what God was saying, so then they collected for themselves teachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Tell me what we want to hear. Don't tell me what we need to hear. Don't tell me the truth. Tell me the lie so I can keep on living the way I want to live. And that's the choice that we always have. Do we want to know truth? And many times, you know, the old adage is true. You can't handle the truth. 
You can't handle the truth. You know, people don't want to know the truth when the, what they want to do is in rebellion against God. They want to keep doing what they're doing, and that's sin nature. Please yourself. Don't live to please God. For those of us who have come to faith in God and the household of God, we now exist to please God. And what we need to do is understand how we can, as individuals, uphold the truth of the Word of God. Number one, we need to hear it. We need to be committed to hearing the Word of God. And what that means simply is what I've already mentioned. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. There is no other way that you can be born again outside of the imperishable seed, which is the Word of God sown in the heart of a sinner who receives the Word of God, rejoices upon the reception of it, repents of sin, and turns and trusts in Christ. That is the only way that anyone can be adopted into the family of God, period. That's God's program. we got to be committed to hear the Word of God. You know, and hearing the Word of God, it takes it's a variety of ways that we can hear the Word of God. You know, we go to a worship service to hear the Word of God. We come to an ABF to hear the Word of God. We go to a Bible study to hear the Word of God. We listen to our radio stations that have godly men who are teaching and committed to preaching the Word of God. We've got to be selective about who we listen to, examine what they say against the Word of God, but we can hear the Word of God. We have a tape ministry here. Thousands and thousands of tapes are given out every year by people who are committed to the mission of God's church, which is to uphold God's truth, get into the hands of people so that they can listen and hear hear the word of God and God can put that seed upon the human heart so that God can bring about spiritual growth. We've got to be committed to hear the word of God. You've got to be in a position to want to hear the word of God and place yourself in that position. We need to sit, set aside quiet time alone with God so God can speak to us individually. To set aside time where you're just alone with God. You know, I'm going through a journal this year. Just time to be alone with God and just reflect upon what I believe God is impressing upon my heart through, the, through hearing the Spirit of God. Cease striving and know that I'm God. Hear my voice. When I run, I hear God. You know, and I, and I, want to, I think one of these times he's going to say, come home. And it's like, I'm close, you know. But, but he gets my attention at certain times he has my undivided attention. We got to be committed to hear it, but not just to hear it, but then to respond and believe it. Mary and Martha, if you remember the story of Lazarus, their brother who had died, Jesus said, do you believe that your brother will rise again on the last day? And and she says, "I, I believe that he will rise again on the last day. Do you believe that? And he went on to say, Mary, who do you believe that I am? And she said, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you are the Savior of the world. I have believed that. Every person has to be absolutely clear in his own heart and according to the standards set in God's Word. Everyone who hears my voice today, is there a time in your life when you have believed? It was a past tense moment in time. She said, I have believed that. She had been confronted with her sin. She recognized what God said was true, that she needed a Savior from the judgment and condemnation of God. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not when. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it. We're already condemned. But He sent His Son to save us from the condemnation of God and the final judgment of being separated from Him for all of eternity in a place called hell. When the Philippian jailer recognized that he was on his way to hell and that he was judged by God, he said, what must I do to be saved from that judgment? They said, repent 
and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be saved. It's not good enough just to hear. We need to believe. We need to study. We need to prove ourselves, as Timothy Timothy was told by Paul, to to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. One of my personal favorite verses is Ezra 7.10, that it said that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it, and then to teach all of Israel. He set his heart. He said, I am making a commitment before God. God, I am set. The word set is like being set in concrete, steadfast, immovable. I am not bending from this. I have set my heart to be diligent to study the word of God. Is there a time in your life personally where you made a commitment before God? I am going to be a diligent student of the word of God so that I understand God's truth to study it, to live it, that I may teach others of the things of God. Memorize it. Thy word I have hid in my heart so that I don't sin against you. To memorize the word of God, to study the word of God so that we will be in a position where we can defend the faith. To be ready in season and out of season. Always prepared to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us. The reason many of us aren't good at sharing our faith of what we believe with other people is, frankly, we don't know what we believe. We've heard we are sinners, and praise God, if you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, hey, then you're in the household of God. But you know what? You're that child who is still drinking milk. You haven't got to the meat, man. You're not into the the deep truths of God yet. And so you don't know what to share with people. Yeah, you've heard, you've believed, but that's as far as your growth process has gone. And God says, hey, grow up. No child is content to be a little child his or her whole life. I mean, I couldn't wait to grow up. And now that I'm older, I look back and go, man, what a good gig that was. In a big hurry, man, can't wait to be, you know, out there paying the bills. What was that all about? (laughs) Meditate. Meditate. One of my favorite passages, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall be careful to meditate on it day and night, being careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous, and then you will have much success. To meditate means to chew on regularly. God, what is it you're trying to teach me? What is that truth all about? What does it mean to me? What do you want me to do with that? Man, just to chew on it. You know, when I'm out for a run or exercise or whatever, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can chew on it. Driving down the freeway, chew on the Word of God, meditate on it so that it's there for you. And you know what? And be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Obey. Obey the Word of God. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who hear the Word of God and observe it. Luke 11, 28. Paul reminded Titus that we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. to, To adorn means to put it on so everybody can see it. To live in such a manner that people know that we belong to the household of God. To put it on so people can see it. To be able to defend the faith. What does it mean to uphold the faith? We've got to be able to defend it. To be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. To defend God's truth. Paul said he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the last thing is we should proclaim it. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. We're chosen by God, his workmanship, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, that you may proclaim, Peter writes, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you from darkness to light. One of the compelling questions that people should ask of you when they see your life as you adorn, you know, this righteous robe of living, 
in the world that is in rebellion against God. One of the compelling questions that should be asked of every one of us is this. Why are you so different? What makes you tick? Help me understand what it is about you that's different than other people that I meet in the world. It should be compelling. I'll give you an example of it. About two, I think it was two or three Sundays ago, uh, the Chicago White Sox were in town to play the Angels. And in, in the responsibility I have, I have the, the privilege of being able to uh, share with both teams while one's on the field, the other's in the locker room. And, and so, you know, we have chapel uh, to those who want to attend. And, uh, you know, the White Sox, it's average attendance ranges anywhere from 6 to 12 to 14 or whatever. And uh, the White Sox, um, as we were waiting, there was probably eight people that came in. And then, I, the guy, you know, the guy who was their head chapel guy said, you know what, Chuck, you better wait a couple minutes. And, you know, and a couple minutes later, there was 12. And a couple minutes later, there was 15. And, you know, and I'm going, okay, you know, we're ready to start because we're, we're on a kind of a tight, tight rope time-wise. Uh, unlike here where I can just, you know, go as long as I want. Uh, <clears throat> and... Uh, and uh, so, you know, 15, 18, and next thing you know, there was 25 guys uh, who came in. And not just players, but there was coaches, there was uh, the radio broadcasters who come. Uh, whoever can come, comes. And I was sharing the passage out of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10, that we're formerly sinners. And that, you know, as, as we go from the household of the devil to the household of God, the process that we go through, and that we live in such a manner that's worthy of that calling. And, uh, and, and afterwards, the guys left, and the radio broadcaster for the White Sox came back in and said, Chuck, can I ask you a question? I said, absolutely. He said, um, where did you get your formal training for speaking? And I said, I, I've never had any. And, um, and some of you realize that. And, and, uh, <laughs> but apparently, he didn't. And, uh, and uh, so he said, uh, really? I said, well, well, yeah, why do you ask? He said, because when you were speaking, there wasn't a guy in this room who wasn't listening to every word you were saying. He goes, including myself, but I was just so amazed at what was going on because we're in a small locker room that may only be from here to that door and there's two benches down the side. And, you know, so it's like, and, and, and every guy was tuned in. And I said, you know what, let me give you, let me, let me just share with you. If you remember from the passage that I shared in Ephesians uh, 2.10, it says that, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the works that God had created for us to do before the foundation of the world. The word masterpiece means that we are God's masterpiece, workmanship. We're his poem, we're his, we're his uh, piece of, of great art or poetry. We are God's work. I said, you know, when you hear me speak or share God's truth, it, it, it attests to the truth of the passage, and that is that I am where I am today because I am the workmanship or masterpiece or trophy of God's grace in my life. It is a perfect living illustration of what I just shared in that passage. And then he said, you know, he belonged to a certain denomination. And he said that when, when we're at home, we have so-and-so come in to do, you know, our, our deal. He goes, but when we're on the road, we have to go to baseball chapel because there's no other place to go. And he said, and I just want to tell you, in those 10 or 15 minutes... I've learned, I learned more in those 10 or 15 minutes than I have in years of being involved in the church that I associate or, or would name myself with. And you know what I say to that? Praise God to the power of the Word of God. When you uphold the Word of God, the Word goes out and does not return void or empty, but accomplishes the purposes for which God has sent it forth. 
we need to recognize and understand that the mission of the church and the responsibility individually of every believer is to uphold the truth of the Word of God. And now in closing, he gets back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and just a powerful, wonderful the message. The mission is to uphold the truth of the Word of God. But you know what the message of the Word of God is? The message is very simple. The message is we are to proclaim is that, that of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This hymn that we find here, this hymn that was an early church hymn, obviously inspired by God because we have it as part of the written inspiration of the Word of God. This hymn is brought up at this point in time because it was pretty obvious that in Ephesus, the person and the work of Jesus Christ was being called into question by false teachers. And so as he goes through this, in summary, he begins to explain to each one of us, particularly Timothy and all of us who read this now, the message of the church is to preach Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and, and, and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. 2 Corinthians 1.9. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservant for Christ's sake. In Galatians he wrote, May it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I into the world. Even Paul preached to the Philippians that even when Christ was preached with wrong motives, he praised God that Christ was preached nonetheless. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That is the message of the church. And anybody who's gifted uh, musically inclined, David, if you're here, uh, I would challenge anyone here to come up with music that would go along with these verses so that one day we can sing them together as a household of God because it doesn't get any better than the content of what's being shared right here. Number one, He was revealed in the flesh. God became man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The living God became man. It says that he was revealed in the flesh. Does not mean to bring into existence or to create or to make. It affirms the pre-existence of Christ. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, Even before Abraham existed, I am. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ created the universe because it was created by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says that Jesus created the heavens and the earth. We know that Jesus Christ is the living God because of the work that God did is the same work that Jesus himself had done himself as far as creation. There is only one God. He is a living God, and God took upon flesh and came to this earth. The living God took on flesh. He existed before he came in the appearance of man. The Bible says in Philippians that he appeared in the appearance or likeness of men. What is the form of God, though he existed in the form of God? Philippians 2, read it sometimes. What is the, what is the form of God? Spirit. In John 4, Jesus said that, you know, there's a time coming when men would worship him in spirit and truth, for God is spirit. He took upon the likeness of men, the form of men. The living God took on flesh so that we would know God personally. We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and full of truth. This is where every cult deceives the world. The Jesus that they preach is not the Jesus of the Bible. 
And in fact, the test for all cults is found in 1 John chapter 4. Very clearly, we're told this, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, don't believe everything that you hear, but test the spirits, 1 John 4, to see whether they are from God, because many false teachers have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Listen, there's no other way around this than this. Jesus Christ is the one eternal living God in human flesh. He came into the world to accomplish a purpose or mission which was to die upon the cross for the sins of the world, sufficient for all and only applicable to those who believe. Spirit cannot shed its blood. He took upon the likeness of men for the purpose of going to the cross to shed his blood. The church he has bought with the precious blood of Christ. Those who know Jesus and have trusted in him as Savior. It says that we have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've got to be very careful when we're discussing with people Jesus. Because there's different ideas of Jesus. Some say he is an angel. Some say that he is a man who became a God by doing good works. But the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the one eternal God who took upon the appearance of men and came to this earth for the purpose of dying upon the cross for the sins of the world. That is the Jesus. He was revealed in the flesh. Jesus said, if you have seen me, if you have seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. John chapter 14. Why is that so important? Because, see, Jesus claimed to be equal to God, and because of that, he was put to death. The accusation against Jesus Christ was that he claimed to be God. They didn't like that, and so they killed him for blasphemy, claiming to be equal to God. But he was vindicated by the Spirit, meaning that he was not guilty. He was declared righteous by the Spirit of God. And how did God declare Jesus righteous? According to Romans chapter 1, he rose him from the dead. He rose him from the dead. He was vindicated in the Spirit. He was declared righteous. He was wrongly executed for claiming to be God. And in reality, that is exactly who he is. Romans 1, 4 says he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. His resurrection by the Spirit proved his sinlessness. If he was a blasphemer, if he was a sinner, he would still be dead today. The Spirit of God raised him up and declared him righteous before all the world. He is who he claimed that he is. He is God in human flesh, the eternal God in human flesh. And he was beheld by angels. All throughout Christ's ministry here on earth, he was beheld by the angels. They looked upon everything that he did. They announced his birth. They were there through the whole process. But importantly, as it refers to his death and resurrection, 1 Peter says this, the fallen angels saw Jesus for who he really is. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. And here it is. Why did he die? In order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. After his death on the cross, our Lord visited the place where certain demons are kept imprisoned and proclaimed his triumph over them. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of Christ, 
that finally put a death blow to Satan. He would bruise him on his heel, but the Bible says that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would crush his head. When was he crushed? When he died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? It is gone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ once and for all crushed our opponent, the enemy, the devil, the liar, the murderer himself. Jesus Christ was beheld by the angels. They looked upon him. They attended to him at, at, the, at the resurrection. Uh, they rolled away the stone at the resurrection. They announced that he is no longer here. He has risen just as he said. Go into Galilee where he told you to go. They announced, his, they announced it and, and they beheld him. They beheld him as he ascended into heaven. Two angels attended as Jesus Christ was ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1. He was proclaimed, the Bible says, among the nations. After his resurrection, and you know if you've gone through the book of Acts with us, after the resurrection, Jesus Christ, the, the message of the apostolic uh, preaching was that Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, died on the cross, rose from the dead, he is alive today. And the only way you'll be made right with God is what? Repent and believe upon him and you shall be saved. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That was the message that was proclaimed to the world, first in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the outermost parts of the world, to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, to everyone. That's the message of the church. Church. That's the mission of the church, to proclaim this truth. So all who hear the truth of the message of God. He was proclaimed to the world, and when he was proclaimed, he was believed. They believed upon him. And at that particular day on Pentecost, the birth of the church, 3,000 people repented of sin and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. He is alive, just as he said. And you know what? We proclaim him today, and people today still believe upon him and enter into the household of God, being born again from above, the imperishable word of God, the seed of God, born again in the heart of the sinner who repents, and people still today believe upon him. The Bible says, and finally, he was lifted up to heaven. I mentioned in Acts chapter 1, why do you stand there staring into space? This same Jesus who was taken up before you will one day come just as he went, and he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, speaking of Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of, above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' ascension showed that the Father was pleased with him and accepted his work. Stephen, as he was being martyred, looked up into heaven and saw Jesus Christ in heaven at the right hand, the right hand of God in all of his glory. These, this, this six verses, or this, this six stanzas, revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by the angels, proclaimed to the world, believed on by those who receive him, and lifted up into heaven... In that six short stanzas, this hymn summarizes the gospel. God became man. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death, was honored by angels, feared by demons, <clears throat> and ascended into heaven. This message was preached all over the world and is still preached today, and many believe, and many are saved. That is the heart of the message, and that is the mission the mission of the church is to proclaim it to the world. As we close today, I challenge you to consider the message that has been shared. And it becomes very personal at this point, and that is this. Is there a moment in time in your past history where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you repented of sin 
and you responded with faith to the finished work of Christ? Are you one who can claim that I have believed? I have believed. If not, then do so today. It is appointed for man to come once, die, die once, and then come judgment. We don't know, as we saw yesterday in the world of baseball, a 33, 34-year-old man found dead in his hotel room. Natural causes. And you know what natural causes are? The consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, we're always looking for a reason. And the autopsy report will come back. Maybe it was a heart attack. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. But you know what the bottom line always is? Underneath it all, the reason that man dies is that the soul that sins shall surely die. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There was a sign in front of an old church in England. And the sign read, We preach Christ crucified. As time went on, the ivy began to grow over the sign and it covered up the last word and it just read, we preach Christ. The ivy continued to grow until it said, we preach. Not really sure what that means. And then finally, the ivy grew over and all it said was we. In any church that becomes a self-centered church, it's all about us. It's all about our needs. It's all about, what about me? What's in it for me? you know, is the last step before a church dies. Because the mission and the message of the church is that we preach Christ and Him crucified. May we never, as a local church, forget our purpose, lest we die. And my challenge today again is this. Number one, if you don't know Christ, and you don't know if you're a member of the family of God, then let's, uh, why don't we bow in prayer? Because there's two things I want to do. Number one, let's pray. For those who don't know Christ, that may be here today, may be listening to this on tape when they get it, that the word of God as it penetrates that heart would convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment of God. If you're here and you're convicted that you don't know for sure what would happen to you if you died, and yet you believe that what it's saying is true, that you're condemned by God because you're a sinner, that you would repent and turn from sin and turn to God and do so today. The wage of sin is death, but we praise God that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A simple prayer of the heart, the words aren't as important as the heart, and as God forgive me, for I am a sinner. I understand for the first time that, that that is the case, and that there's no hope for me. I'm of my father, the devil. And God, I just pray that you will forgive me of my sin. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God in human flesh. <clears throat> the Son of God who came to this world because He loved me and died on the cross for me. He was raised three days later, vindicated of the accusations that He would be so ridiculous to equate Himself as equal to God. And yet that is who He is. And I believe that He died for my sin. I believe that He rose from the get dead. And I believe what Your Word says, that I am born again at that moment in time from above and not any effort or work on my part, but it's a free gift of God and not of works so that I could never boast. Lord, I thank you that I'm now a part of your family and I look forward to what you would have me be as I grow in my faith and understanding of you and as I become more like Jesus. And God, I just pray for those of us who have come to know you at a point in the past without any question in our mind that we are children of God for those who have believed in Jesus Christ 
And it is my prayer that we would continue to be those who uphold your truth. Those who proclaim the gospel. And we pray now that you would open the hearts of those around us who need to know Christ and him crucified. That you would open their hearts and their ears to hear the message that you have entrusted to us to share with them. And that you would give us the boldness and not timidity to share the truth. God, we love you. We thank you. We're, an amazed, we're amazed that even yet while we were sinners, that you sent Christ to die for us. What a tremendous demonstration of that love for us. And we just praise you now in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.